Welcome to the Relentless Minds podcast with Lori Jimenez, a platform where influential entrepreneurs get real and share their stories of challenges in life that they've had to face head on and conquer in order to be where they are today. Here, you'll get an inside look at the adversities that these individuals have experienced or are currently dealing with, in addition to their opinions on real life matters and philosophies in life. Most importantly, you'll learn what it takes to have a relentless mind so that you too can stay headstrong in your pursuit of a better future. In this podcast, you're going to get 100% authenticity from people that have figured out how to beat the noise that society creates and have a higher level of self-mastery. Welcome back to the Relentless Minds podcast. Today I have with me Jim Stavis. Jim is a CEO of a successful steel company based out of California, which he's been running for 31 years. He is also a triple transplant survivor, and a motivational speaker. Jim was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at 17 and spent 35 years coping with the disease. After facing near failure of his heart and kidney, he underwent surgeries over two years to replace his heart, kidney, and pancreas, leading him to be cured of his diabetes and lifelong ailments. Now, Jim dedicates his life to sharing his story with others and spreading hope. Jim, thank you so much for being here today. I truly appreciate it. Hi, Lori. It's my pleasure. I wanted to really thank you because, you know, taking the time aside so that you can share the story that you've dealt with for many, many, many years of your life, the majority of your life, for others to really know what you went through. And on top of the difficulties that you dealt with in your personal life, in your health life, also running a successful business on top of that and, and managing to cope with that and, and still run the successful business despite these, these challenges. So I truly appreciate you taking the time to share your story with others so that our listeners can learn from that and then apply that in their own lives. So what I'd love for you to do is really just take us back. I want us to know about your story, about you, about where it all started and how it's really influenced your life and given you the insight you have now to share with the world. Thank you, Lori. My life was pretty normal as a, as a child. And, and for the most part, I, I grew up in the LA area. As many kids did, I had, uh, you know, I would say I, I was a product of the 60s and uh, enjoyed the, the life during that period of time. And, and as, as the decade turned to the 70s and I was uh, 17 years old, I, I noticed that things just weren't right. I was starting to have some health problems um, where um, typical diabetic symptoms, which were excessive thirst, urination, um, decreased, appetite. So my parents took me to a doctor, not knowing what these symptoms were. And the doctor diagnosed me as being a juvenile diabetic, which at the time I knew I didn't know what that was. And during the 70s, it wasn't as common as it is today. So it wasn't something that was readily um, as, as common as it might be today. So I was told by the doctor at the time that aside from the changes that I was going to have to incur 
that the lifelong expectancy for a diabetic based on my age at the time, I'd be lucky to make it to 50, mm. which for a teenager was a pretty dramatic piece of news. And he also told me that the expectation for kidney disease, heart disease, blindness, amputations, and a host of other things would likely be a part of my life, that that was something that statistically they had proven was the case. So that was a pretty daunting uh, forecast for a young 17-year-old who was kind of in the prime of my youth, excited about you know, going off to college, starting a career. And I was just in high school at the time, uh, had just gotten my driver's license. So uh, at the time, it was a pretty daunting forecast. And, and I really had a decision to make. It was, was how I was going to allow this diagnosis to affect my life. Was I going to let it define my life? And was I going to kind of live... Um, just, you know, fearing all of these things that I was told was going to happen to me. And my parents at the time were pretty much spent a lot of their <clears throat> time focusing on where did it come from? How could this be? Mm -hmm. And I looked at that and thought, that really doesn't matter. That doesn't that doesn't uh, change the conversation because the reality is it's, it, it is, and I better start dealing with it. Instead of using it as, as a way to create fear, instead I used it as a motivation to kind of get my life together quicker than perhaps what my friends were doing, knowing that I had a shorter lifespan to live. And I used it <clears throat> to start a business at a very young age. I went to college, I went to UCLA, um, raised a family, and just pretty much in my mind had decided that I was going to um, live my life as best as I could. And if those things that were forecasted for me at a young age were actually to occur, that hopefully medical technology would have an answer for them. So I was pretty much putting my faith in medicine and it, it, it turned out that that's what happened, but we'll get to that later. Mm -hmm. um, um, I went about my life, again, starting a business at a very young age, um, provided um, a, a, a comfortable life for my family, and in a way used the diabetes as kind of the central motivator for me all the while. Incredible. And so you started your business at what age were you? Well, I started a business actually as a teenager. I had a job at the time in the automotive aftermarket, which made products for cars, mm -hmm. um, which at the time we made products for import cars which were becoming more and more prominent in the U.S. market for, for Datsuns and, or Toyotas, Hondas, things of this sort. And that was when the gas crisis hit in the early 70s. And 
and people were trading in their American-made cars for these import cars. Hmm. So we made the products that made these import cars gotcha. run a little faster and a little more fun. Mm-hmm. And again, it was one of those things that at the time, the American car market thought those imports, it's a passing fad. It'll never, it'll never be. And it turns out that, I mean, today, probably half the cars on the road are imports. So hmm. it was, it was, uh, and fortunate for us, it, it turned out that the products we made serviced a market that was here to stay. Yep. Yep. And I want to dive into that, the success of your business too, in a bit, but can you tell us, um, you were telling us already how you had those, those initial signs of your diabetes before it was diagnosed, which was increased urination. Um, and you were always, you know, increased thirst and also, also always, um, always hungry. I think you mentioned also, um, when it comes to dealing with this throughout, you know, I'd say the the next decade of your life after 17, probably when you started your your business and when you were in college um, and just trying to really, you know, you, I guess you were feeling like a race against time, right? How were you, um, how was that experience living with diabetes? Like for people who don't know how it is to live with diabetes type one. Diabetes is life-changing. It's, it's the kind of thing that you, it, it, it affects pretty much the way you live your life, the way you eat. Um, it has to do with uh, how much working out you should do, um, the, the choices that you make as far as what you eat, uh, testing your blood sugar, and the effects of it don't happen all at once. It's kind of like a, um, like a, a time bomb in a way. You're, you're, it's a drip, drip every day. You're affecting the circulation within your body. So it's not like one day you wake up and your, your heart stops working, but it affects all of the blood vessels in your body. And over the course of time, that's what creates the complications. But, but, to, but to ask the question about how does it affect your day-to-day living, it's, it's just that you have to be very mindful of what, let's say, what your blood sugar levels are and whether or not you're taking enough insulin to counteract when your blood sugar is high. And, and I must say, for, for the sake of your audience, the management of diabetes today is light years ahead of what it was back when I was diagnosed in Mm -hmm. the 1970s. Back in the 1970s, they didn't even have blood testing equipment. We had to urinate on a a stick and then Mm. look to see where it was relative to high or low. And today they have equipment where you can have it set up on your cell phone. So your cell phone will tell you what your blood sugar is at any point in the, of time. You don't even have to prick your finger like we used to. Mm-hmm. So again, diabetes today is far more prevalent, but the management and the monitoring of it are light years ahead of what it used to be. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so and, uh-huh. go ahead. 
Oh, I was going to say, so that in this period, in the first like decade, you know, we meant, and we spoke about this earlier because you were dealing with it 35 years before you could get your transplants, but it was in the beginning more of like a maintenance, right? It was checking daily, you know, right. your diet, your, your exercise. And then it wasn't until later, I remember reading like around your, when you were in your forties, um, that it was, you started to really experience the, your organs just started to, oh, you had, and you had this, um, uh, an artery even that was, um, you know, blocked off like 95%. Uh, when you were 42, like, you know, and so this stuff was later on, right? But in the beginning, you were just, at, it was at maintenance. But unfortunately, that's how this, this disease works is that it is just like a, over the years, it's just wasting away, you know, at these, at these vital organs. So what it does is it affects the smaller um, blood vessels first, which are the blood vessels in your eyes, in your kidneys. And then as it goes to the larger vessels, that's more of like your arteries and, and um, ultimately to the heart, which mm-hmm. is, is, um, which is where it ultimately led when you said that it was the artery that was 95% blocked, that actually occurred when I was 42, which I nearly died when, when that um, event occurred. But again, that a lot of the damage is being done over the course of time, and you're not so aware of it. When I went to a cardiologist after that event, and we did a, a angioplasty, uh, which is them sticking a a balloon through your arteries to put stents in. He said, I'm doing the best I can, but considering he's got diabetes, the quality of his vessels just aren't very good. So that then it became known to me how I looked reasonably young on the outside, but my inside was probably 20 years older mm. than what the outside looked like. <clears throat> so that's a reality that diabetics face and you're not aware of it because you can't really see it from the outside. Wow. That incredible. That's incredible. The amount of, cause the thing is that being, having to deal with this also years back, like before the advances in technology even existed. Um, I'm sure these were things that were very new to you as you were coming across them and then to not have really a solid solution you know, at that time, that could have been very discouraging. But can you tell us what it was that kept you going? You know, what it kept, what it was that that made like motivated you to keep going, to keep working on your business, on yourself, on your health, um, and just to not give up. I, I'd say two things. One is that I I'm basically an optimistic person, meaning meaning that. You know, there's people that where the glass is half full and there's people where the glass is half empty. Um, I've always been very optimistic in nature and believe that if you work hard and you have a a positive belief system that good things will follow. Um, And I'd say that a lot of um, diabetics kind of live in a bit of a denial state where they don't really 
they, mm. they, they refuse to take it seriously enough. And, and that's one thing that I want to stress to people is that it really does need to be taken seriously. It's not something you can just wish that it's going to go away because it doesn't. So, um, and then the second thing, which I think is equally, um, which is perhaps a little more spiritual, a little more, um, <clears throat> it, it's that I believe that there is destiny and fate that comes into play. If you're, if things are meant to happen, they will happen. If I was meant to live, I would live. And so this, this, this thought really came into being when I was confronted later with a doctor that said to me, well, you, you have congestive heart failure. Your, your kidneys have failed. Your heart is, is failing and you have diabetes. So you need a new heart, you need a new kidney, and best case, a new pancreas. The only problem is we've never done such a triple organ transplant, and I don't think it's ever been done anywhere. Hmm. So I looked at him and said, then I'll be the first one. Hmm. And he just kind of smiled at me and thought, okay, he has no idea what he's talking about, but okay. So I, I thought a lot about that discussion because that's the kind of discussion that like what made me feel that way? What made me feel like I was going to, you know, have that moment where I truly believed that I was going to be the first one. And, and yet, and the only thing that I can point to is this basic attitude that I had, which was this fate fatalistic, view and that I also believe that this was what my whole life has been leading up to is this mm. moment. This was my moment. So it ended up coming to pass. So at that moment, you basically were preparing yourself throughout your life, you felt, because you were saying from the beginning that you just, you knew that that technology was not there, right? But you were right. refusing to give up. You were waiting for that opportunity where it would be presented to you, obviously not on a silver platter, Right. right. But right. it was going to have challenges. It was going to have, you know, risks for even facing death, um, which would have been more immediate than if you would have had waited. Right. But you were saying, but you felt like this was what you were basically preparing yourself your whole life. Right. Now this the technology was, this, is there. It's just you're the first person to do yes. it. Yeah. This was, this was my destiny, essentially. Wow. That's what my belief was. Wow. And but you also had to deal with first the a cardiologist who it looks like wasn't even wasn't even at that level of even presenting an option for you to have an alternative first right and when you had to find an alter, another cardiologist that's correct yes so so i i believe that there's three things that really stand out to me that perhaps separated me from others that don't necessarily have the same outcome. Uh, the first is that I really was going to learn and educate myself and not just take the first doctor that gave me his opinion. And so I did go working with other doctors and other hospitals to try and find somebody who could champion my case. And it it was very important that I found, I found one particular doctor, his name was Mason Weiss, and he 
was the first one that said, how do you feel about transplant? And mm -hmm. I said, transplant? He said, yeah, I actually have patients where, and I think you would be an excellent candidate for it, where um, I can't even get them to come into my office because they're so mm -hmm. um, transformed. So he was the one that really kind of led the drive for me and pointed me to to Cedar sinai which was the hospital that did all the surgeries. And so I think it's very important to get the best medical opinions and services because not all doctors are created equal. Yeah. Second thing I think is that you have to have a really strong um, support system, which includes your family and friends and not everybody has that either. So I think that that for me was a huge component. And then um, the third thing really is just the belief system. You, you have to have a, a, a very strong mental um, belief system, be positive in nature, and that you can overcome whatever adversity that comes in your way. Absolutely. That belief system, I mean, overall is super, super important. The belief in yourself, because a lot of people won't have support, right? A lot of people, unfortunately, they'll, they won't have family. They won't have, you know, the friends or, or the, the close members to, to give them support. But having that belief in themselves, having, you having the belief in yourself. And I'm so happy that you had that support of your family and of your friends and of the health team behind you, you know, to tell you, hey, there's a risk, but we've got your back. Because I'm sure that was super encouraging because as, you know, as relentless and as just as, as, as strong as you are, and I can see that it, it, it's still a scary situation to have to go through thinking, you know, hey, I'm the first person to do this and there's really no guarantee on on, on what's going to be the outcome. Um, and can you actually talk to us? So this moment, so this, you were about 49 years old at this and you were facing, and correct me if I'm wrong, it was congestive heart and kidney failure. And that's why they were yes. presenting the opportunity, right? Correct. Okay. And so they were presenting the opportunity to do, was it at that moment that they said, we're going to have to replace all three or they said first two. And then later on they said, well, we also should do the pancreas. The the, the thought at the time was all three needed to be replaced, that I could continue to live with my um, diabetes, which was the pancreas, but in order to preserve the new heart and kidney, I would need to get a new pancreas within a couple of years because otherwise the damage for the new organs would start to occur. So it was a way of preserving the, the, the new heart and kidney. So when I went into surgery, they didn't know if they were gonna do one, two or three uh, mm -hmm. organs at the time. And they chose to do the heart and kidney and then the pancreas we did the following year from a different donor. From a different donor, okay. Right. And the doctor that you saw that did the surgery for you, um, this was Dr. Shaw. Right. Dr. Shaw, Dr. Shaw was the main cardiologist at, um, at Cedar sinai He's more of the academia 
chief of cardiology as opposed to the actual doctor that does the surgery itself. Mm-hmm. So he's okay. the one that who makes the big decisions as to what is going to occur and, or not occur. Mm-hmm. And um, he was uh, instrumental in my case as, as well. Wow. And can you tell us then about your experience with mentally going through, going into the surgery and then, you know, out of the surgery and then having to prepare again for the following year, like that experience for you and really what, what you were feeling. So it's an interesting process. Um, When you go through something like this, they have a social worker sit with you to make sure that you're mentally strong enough to go through the whole ordeal of it. And this social worker was asking me a battery of questions, most of which I was kind of rolling my eyes at because they were just, I thought, kind of simple and didn't, weren't that challenging. And then, and then he asked me one question, which was, what is your source of hope? Mm-hmm. And I, and I sat and thought about that question. And I thought that's pretty interesting because we all need a source of hope. And what is that? What is that thing that makes us get motivated to get up every day and fight the fight? And so, uh, and I think that it, the, these perhaps simple answers might be, oh, well, my, it's my family or perhaps it's my faith. And I thought about it and I realized that it's, it really boils down to those two things that I told you earlier about my belief that if things are meant to happen, they will happen. And good things had always happened to me in the past. And so I believed that they would continue. So it was that fatalistic, optimistic thought which drove me. And, and when I speak, I kind of challenged the audience to think about, well, what is your source of hope? Because you don't want to be on your deathbed when you're thinking about that question. Why not think about it today? Yeah. You know, an interesting thing is that you mentioned that you believe, right? You go through life believing, hey, what's supposed to happen is going to happen. But I've also um, kind of been presented with the concept or the idea of, well, some people, or the realization that some people could take that as, you know, accepting defeat, right? Like, hey, this is something that's bad. It's because I'm not supposed to, like when you were diagnosed at 17 with diabetes, uh, some people could have taken that as, well, I'm actually destined to not do anything in life because this is right. a debilitating disease. But as, but you didn't take it that way, right? You use that as your motivation to do something with you, to turn around that situation and do something more with your life. That's and so how is that, how, how can you implement or, or, or explain that philosophy in a way that is beneficial as opposed to detrimental? That's a great question. And, and I would say to you, I'll even give you a personal story, which is um, I started my steel business, Paragon Steel in 1988 with a partner who was basically my age and um, very healthy man. Um, we went to, we're in business together for 25 years. And unfortunately he had uh, an infection that spread and it was going from one organ to another. And 
I'm probably the most knowledgeable person that he could rely on to give him insight and wisdom, having gone through all that I went through. And yet I could never get his head in the right space mm. to believe that he could overcome um, the, the infection that was ravaging his body and ultimately he passed. Mm. And, and in the end, his family would say to me that he believed that um, he, was, he was a very religious person and he believed that God would care for him in life or in death. And I thought that was a bit of a cop-out, that that didn't, that was one way of looking at it, mm -hmm. but, and perhaps for him, it was the right way to look at it. But yeah. within my own, within my perspective, I said, perhaps God put me on this earth to be your partner, to keep you from, you know, Absolutely. to knowing that you could overcome all of this hardship and pain and you'd still be alive today, but it, it didn't really work that way. So I think that everybody's different. Everybody is, you know, we're, we're kind of created from our upbringing and, you know, some people have a, a stronger belief system than others. So it's hard to manufacture the belief if it isn't there. That's my point. So as much as I was the resource for him who could perhaps give him the, the view of how he could go, it never really worked that way. He, it was some, it, because within him, he was unable to get the strength and overcome the, the hardship that was to follow. Wow. How many years, um, just to get the time frame, how many years were you guys business partners before he was? We were, we're, we're business partners for 20, 25 years and he passed five years ago. So 25 and then five years ago and he got the infection. How many years into your partnership? Uh, he got the infection. He, he had it for two years before he passed. Gotcha. So. Wow. So, so was, you guys so were it was, together. It was about 23 years. So there was a lot of opportunity there for him to, to, to get that help from you. And you mentioned, you know, you mentioned something very interesting, which is very true. And that is just that it has to do with everybody's beliefs, right? Like the way that they see that's the world, correct. because that's what we see nowadays with people that can face the same they can face the same hardship or similar hardship, but then have two completely different reactions to it. Right. right. It's really about how they view. It's like the lens that the, the lens that they view the world through and how they feel that this, like how they accept a situation to be like, what is their, their, their belief system or, or their thought patterns around this scenario, this situation and how it affects them. And that is, and that's uh, unfortunate. And I'm sorry to hear that your friend passed, um, you know, but that's a very good point. And it's a good, very, very good point that you mentioned that it really has to do with what people accept to be their truth. Um, but in your, in your case, you took this as, hey, I'm not going to let this defeat me. And I'm going to use this as the reason why I, sh I need to get ahead. 
and Correct. you were basically waiting for the technology to come into play. Well, I wrote a book. Um, the, 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 the title of the book is When Hope is Your Only Option. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the book was designed to talk about exactly what we're talking about right here, which is how do you get your, your headspace in the right place so that when we do go through any kind of adversity, how do we find the, the way through it? And a, a big part of my thought process had to do with the fact that how I succeeded and how my partner did not, because those were to me, it was a strong uh, example of both. And, and so I, ultimately I came to that um, it, it comes down to hope because hope, you're either hopeful or you're hopeless. And, and where you are on that spectrum, a lot of times can determine how successful you are at getting through it. Um, you know, it's not, it's not easy. And I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to minimize how much um, effort and, and uh, pain can go through the, the process that everyone must go through. It's not, you know, it's, it's, um, it's hard. It's the, uh, to me, that's the first stage is having to endure the adversity, the pain, the sorrow, the loss, whatever it might be. But you have to use the tools of finding hope, which a lot of it is psychological and it's a belief system um, and an attitude that you can get through it. And, and some people have a much stronger belief in that than others. And then the third stage, which I think I'm in, is kind of um, the prevail stage. Once you've gotten through it, now what? Now what do you do? How do you influence others? How do you make your life, um, you know, kind of expressing the gratitude that you have, that you made it through it? And that's kind of where I'm at. That's where you're at. Yeah, absolutely. Because you went through your, your three tr transplants and you have conquered this, this disease. And now you're using this to give inspiration to others, give hope to others, show them that it is possible, right? And an, imp uh, an impressive thing that also I just wanted to mention that you did um, that is super important is that you, you know, going back to how you faced this disease and how you faced um, like trying to achieve your goals in every facet was that you, if so, one way didn't work, you took an alternative route, right? There was another option. So like when you were mentioning about the healthcare provider or this cardiologist that wasn't giving you the solution that you were, that, that was like a hopeful, it was like a hopeless solution, right? That you said, well, I mean, am I going to accept this as being my, my final outcome? No, I'm going to look for something else, right? Something else that I can use to, to, as a stepping stone to get to where I, I want to be. And that was, that, that's, that's key is what like your first concept, it's to endure, right? It's to endure, it's to last, it's to find a way to help you keep going. And that's what a lot of people need to realize and understand that it's not always a straight shot, right? You're going to hit your, you're going to hit a dead end and then you have to find a, a way to reroute right? Something else that you can, so that you can still keep going to that goal because really that 
is your reality. Like you, you have to create your reality, what you want. And so um, that's what I really loved about you mentioning these, all like your experience and everything that you went through. It was a lot of like trial and error, right? And trying to especially figure, just dealing with a time, an era where they just didn't have the technology, they didn't have the knowledge of this, of how to help cure this, this disease. That's correct. I actually find a lot of parallels between running a business mm -hmm. and my personal uh, journey, health journey that I've been on, mm. in that there is a lot of trial and error involved, and there are a lot of upsets along the way, and it's not just, um, you know, setting a course and staying on it because you don't know what things you're going to encounter. And so you have to make adjustments. And the difference is on a health path, it has life or death implications. And yet on a business level, okay, we made that mistake, but let's, we'll go in another direction. And it's not perhaps as life or death. So I think that a lot of my business skills that I learned somewhat at a young age ended up helping me when I had to make these important life decisions when it when it came to having to decide which direction to go and then making decisions decisively when I found that this was this is the doctor that I wanted this is the hospital I wanted and then going forward with that knowing, knowing that it was the right decision to make despite all those challenges and and the you know the the life-changing experiences that you dealt with especially having to go through the surgeries that you went through and then the loss of your partner that you're able to still you know have that it's just that mindset and it's that resilience that you have to keep going and to keep these things running you know it's for yourself or your family and i'm very happy that you were able to share that with with us today, you know, share your story and the inspiration that, that you provide with that. Um, and what I wanted to ask you um, when it comes to what you've learned um, and how it's influenced you and your philosophies in life would be after everything that you've been through up to this point, what message would you like to share with our listeners today? I would say there's three. I always seem like three is the, is the, the happy number for me. So there's three. Uh, the first thing is if you are um, eligible to be an organ donor, I would promote that because registering to be an organ donor saves lives. And that's the reason that I'm here today. So that's number one. Um, second thing, and, and it goes back to something you said, which I don't want people that have diabetes or that have family members or friends that are diabetics, because the other type of diabetes that we haven't talked about is type two diabetes, which is more of an adult onset type, mm -hmm. which is different and which is very prevalent today as well. Mm -hmm. But it's not the death diagnosis that I was given back in the early 1970s. So it doesn't mean that you're gonna have a triple organ transplant if you're a diabetic. And with the technology that's out today, you can live a very normal life. Mm -hmm. So that's number two. And then number three really is how you can use the concept of having hope to play a positive role in your life 
and, and getting through whatever adversity that might confront you because we all know that eventually we'll be tested in some one way or another and having a positive mindset gives you a much better chance of getting through that adversity than of not getting through that adversity. So I'm a big proponent on finding that hopeful place. Finding that purpose, finding that, that yes. hope, and then staying positive. Positivity is so important. Yes. I appreciate that. I appreciate your final messages to uh, my audience today. And for everyone listening, if you wanted to be, to get in touch with um, Jim, or you wanted to reach out to him regarding booking, or you had questions, um, you can do so with his contact form found on his website, which is jimstavis.com. And Stavis, his last name is spelled S-T-A-V-I-S. Again, that's jimstavis.com. And if you are interested in checking out his blog on Facebook, you can find that blog page on Jim Stavis Speaks. So Jim, thank you so much for being here today. I truly, truly, truly appreciated the time that you took aside. Okay, Lori, thank you very much. And to everybody else, thank you so much. Until next time. That concludes this episode. If you enjoyed it, feel inspired, and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Relentless Minds podcast via the link in the show notes or visit LoriJimenez.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.